Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's start in John chapter 14 tonight. We've been teaching a series on the Holy Spirit for a number of weeks, and we want to go a little bit further into that tonight. John chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, and he has shared with them some information uh, critical to them and, and that certainly affected them greatly. He talked about leaving and going to the Father. We know that he's speaking of his crucifixion. And uh, let's start reading in verse 8. Apparently his disciples were not convinced of who Jesus was. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. The word suffice means to satisfy. So he said, we'll be satisfied if you'll show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Notice that phrase. He's the one doing the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. He's saying the works that you've seen, including all the miracles, all the healings, and so forth, should be evidence enough, proof enough, that the Father is in him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, we know that after Jesus was raised from the dead, in John chapter 20, it tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples, breathed on them, and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. And something changed in them. Where before they had been behind closed and locked doors for fear of the Jews, they were afraid that just as they killed and crucified Jesus, they'd come after his followers. So they're hiding out. But as soon as Jesus appears to them and breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Ghost, something changed for them on the inside. It talks about how they were openly in the temple from that point forward, that they were filled with great joy. Well, the only thing that, uh, that we can identify that could possibly have happened is that they were born again. When Jesus said, Receive the Holy Spirit, he's talking about being born again, being born again. And that is obviously what happened because we see the fruit of the Spirit begin to be exhibited in their lives their fear has gone away but then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise from on high Acts 1.8 says but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me unto Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the world now here where Jesus is telling them about the Holy Ghost and really he just gives them a summary a quick summary of the things that the Holy Ghost would do for them Paul expanded and expounded on that a little bit when he gives us the manifestations of the Spirit, the list of nine manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we've, well, I'm not sure we really did anything other than just define them and show examples of them in, in uh, both the Old Testament and the New. But the Bible talks about, and, and Jesus is very specific about this, he makes a point of talking about the difference between him and the Father. Now, for me, I don't need to know that it wasn't him doing the works. I understand that the works were operating through him. But he gives the, uh, the, the origination of all those works, of all those miracles, of all those healings as being the Holy Ghost. Now, one of the things that I've been impressed in this series to do 
and I've attempted to do it up to this point and will continue to, is to point out the things that the, that the Holy Ghost initiates. The Bible says, Paul tell, talking about those uh, nine manifestations of the Spirit, he said that all of these nine manifestations are divided to every man severally as he wills, he being the Holy Ghost. Well, when we read those things, and we look at the book of Acts, and it looks like there's just miracle after miracle after miracle. Uh, you know, every day is a miracle somewhere or another. We can get the idea, if we're not careful, we can get the idea that the Holy Ghost, since he doesn't seem to move that way among us or in our midst, that maybe things have changed. But here in John chapter 14, Jesus is saying, and the reason that he says, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Think about that for a minute, folks. Of all the works that Jesus did, of all the healings, of all the miracles, of all the things that he did, that didn't even come close to taxing the power of God. Jesus said, you'll do the same works. Well, that makes sense. We'll do the same works because it's the same Holy Ghost. The comforter that has come, come to us, the one he promised would come for them. But since Jesus has paid the price and been to the cross and now seated at the right hand of God, He's available for us. He's not a promise for us. He's a reality. But now the Bible talks about, in a couple of places, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. It's the last verse of the chapter. I think it's verse 31. It tells us to covet earnestly the best gifts. Now he's talking about these manifestations of the Spirit. And so he tells us to covet these things. In chapter 14, verse 1, it says, desire these things. He said, follow after love and desire spiritual gifts. How do you draw the line between what Jesus said to do in desiring and coveting these things and being a wicked and evil generation that seeks a sign? Jesus said on several occasions, a wicked and evil generation seeks after or looks for a sign. But right here he told, Peter, or told Philip that you could see that, he was, that the Father was in him because of the works that were done. So there should be an expectancy for, uh, in us and by us for the things of the Spirit. But as I said before, Jesus made a, a specific point several times in several different ways about saying that the works that were taking place, the healings and the miracles, they were not happening because of him. They were not taking place because he was doing them or initiating them. He said it was the Father in him that does the works. Well, when Jesus said, the Father in me, he doeth the works, he has to be talking about the Holy Ghost. So if the Father in him was pro producing works, those works were of the Holy Ghost, the same thing would have to be true for us. And that's why Jesus could say with confidence, the works that I do shall you do also. Well, it's the same Holy Ghost given to us that it was given to him. We know that it was the work of the Holy Ghost on, on several fronts. There are several ways we can prove it. The first and foremost way was that's what Jesus said. Remember when Jesus was uh, tempted of the devil after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. He spent 40 days in the wilderness preparing for the work that God had for him to do. And the devil came and tempted him toward the end of the thing. I think a lot of times we get the idea that he was tempted for 40 days, but the Bible says that he fasted for 40 days. And at the end, the devil came at his weakest point and brought the three temptations to him. And each time Jesus responded by saying, it is written. 
Well, when Jesus was tempted of the devil, his means of escape or overcoming or having victory over the devil was to, to quote the word. Well, how much more should we need to quote the word when we're facing temptations or trials? He set an example for us. And it says after the devil, uh, it says after these temptations, after Jesus answered by what the word says, the devil left him. And then in Luke chapter 4, I think it's verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And that's when he started doing miracles. He returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. That phrase has always thrilled me. The power of the Spirit. One reason it's, uh, it's special to me is because that was one of Brother Hagin's favorite scriptures. And when he, uh, oftentimes he would refer to that scripture. And you could tell when he would say it, you could tell that there were things that he had put in, the time that he had put in and meditating on those things. It meant something to him. When he said Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, you could tell that that was something that was deep in his heart. And so the first time I ever heard him use that phrase or read that scripture, it had a similar impact upon me. And does every time I think about it, every time I say it, every time I read it. He returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. Now, folks, that power of the Spirit that he returned in is the work of the Holy Ghost that Jesus said would produce the same things in you and me. Again, a few verses later in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when Jesus is in his own hometown of Nazareth, he opens the book. He goes to the synagogue and stood up to read. And he opens the book of the prophet Isaiah. We know of it as Isaiah 61. And he begins to speak. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. First thing Jesus preached in Nazareth was that he was anointed. How long has he been anointed? Well, there were 40 days in the wilderness. Then there was a, a certain amount of time that he went to Capernaum. But it's been less than two months since he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, probably closer to a month and a half, really. And the first thing he says when he goes into his own hometown of Nazareth is that he reads about the prophecy that would be upon the Messiah and the anointing that would come with it. So he claimed to be anointed. He said he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. Jesus said, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. He's literally saying these scriptures are talking about me. And everybody understood those scriptures were talking about the Messiah. Referring to the work that the Messiah would do. And Jesus came out just as plainly as you could and said this that was written that you hear and know. Is fulfilled because I'm the guy. Well, they didn't take to that very well. They wound up wanting to kill him or trying to kill him, but Jesus walked through the midst of them. Well, that's two evidences that we have of the power of the Spirit or the working of the Holy Ghost upon Jesus. A third one would be in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Peter preaching to Cornelius in his household said how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, why was Jesus doing the healings and the mighty works, the good works? 
because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. God anointed him with the Holy Ghost to do the work. So when Jesus says, the Father in me doeth the works, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the same Holy Spirit that's been given to the church, that's been given to you and me. So now, folks, the only thing that has to be answered to come to a knowledge and, and right understanding of what God wants to do in our day is to find out if the Holy Ghost has changed. Because if he hadn't changed, and Jesus, by saying, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works shall you do because I go into my Father, Jesus is saying the Holy Ghost won't change then either. He's saying the whole, same Holy Spirit that's helped me will help you. The same comforter that's been upon me and anointed me to do these works will anoint you to do the same works and even greater works. Sister uh, Amy Simple McPherson that founded the Foursquare Gospel Denomination. She used to have a sermon that she'd preach often and it was called The Great I Am. And she'd spend the whole time talking about the works of God throughout the Bible. And she'd pose the question throughout the whole thing. She'd say, is he, he the great I am or the great I was? I think that's where the church is stuck, or a lot of the church anyway. Is he the great I am or is he just the great I was? A lot of people seem to think Jesus was the great I was when it comes to healing and miracles. Well, folks, I would submit to you that he can't be the great I was because God said he never changes. And if Jesus is speaking of the Father in him that doeth the works as being the Holy Ghost, then the Holy Ghost can't change either. So where's the balance? Where's the balance for the modern-day church to covet and desire spiritual gifts as opposed to seeking a sign? Turn back with me to, to uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a guy at the uh, pool of Bethesda. And he does it on the Sabbath day, which always rankled the religious leaders. And so after he tells, after Jesus heals this man, this crippled man, he leaves and finally figures out that it was Jesus that had made him whole. Verse 16 says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered him, answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Now think about what that means. When Jesus talks about the work, we know what he's talking about. We know what he's referring to. He told Philip that he only does the things that he sees his father do. He only speaks the words that he sees his father speak. And the works that are produced or were produced in Jesus' three years of ministry here on the earth should be sufficient to a believer, should be sufficient to identify what God's like. And that's really the claim Jesus is making. He's saying, I'm doing these things at the will of my Father, not my own will. And so whatever you see me do is the same as seeing the Father do it himself. How does he do it? Well, again, we found out he's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that's given to us. So when Jesus says, my Father worketh hitherto, and I work, so I must work. 
He's saying this is something that God the Father would do and has sent me to do, so I'm going to do it. Now, they didn't accept that, and they sure didn't like that when he talked about being one with the Father. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but that he had said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, in what way would Jesus be claiming to be equal with God? It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It has to be. That's the thing that Jesus kept saying. I'm not the one doing the works. These are not my words. They're words given to me by the Father. Well, that's one of the things he said the Holy Ghost would do. So that has to be a work of the Holy Ghost upon him then, doesn't it? And then when he says the works that are taking place, I'm not the source of that. Now, you can well understand why people would be confused about that. Because they're seeing Jesus do the works, but then Jesus turns around and says, I'm not the one doing them. He has a clear understanding of the difference between him and who he is and the power he has as an individual here on the earth as opposed to the anointing of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the work that he has given him to do. The work that the Holy Spirit has given Jesus to do. Jesus is very clear about that. I don't think many people come to the point where they recognize the difference between who they are and the power of God upon them. Or the anointing of God, if you want to call it that. Jesus was really clear on that. You know, Paul was too. Paul goes into great detail in the book of Romans, specifically chapter 7 and 8. Paul goes into great detail talking about how there's a different man on the inside than the man that's behaving on the outside. He recognizes that the real him, the spirit man, the eternal part of him, the him who is eternal, he recognizes that that one, that man, always wants to do the, same, the, the right things, always wants to please God. But there's another man on the outside, and he's talking about his flesh, the outward man. There's another man on the outside that pulls him into wrongdoing. And his dilemma is, now that I've figured out the difference between the man on the inside and the man on the outside, all the guilt and condemnation that comes to any and all of us when we make a mistake, when we step into, or step into or stumble into sin. His dilemma is, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me from the guilt and condemnation that I feel when the man on the outside pulls me away from doing what the man on the inside wants to do, which is good and right? Well, that's the beautiful verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Apparently, that was too tough for the translators to accept because they find a phrase in verse 4 which says, Who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And they pulled the words of verse 4, that phrase about walking in the Spirit instead of the flesh, they pulled that out of verse 4 and added that to verse 1. It's not there in the original manuscripts. Now, the only reason that I can think why somebody would make that kind of egregious error regarding the Scripture is if the statement that Paul made in verse 1, the way that it was originally written, was just too great for them to accept. Because if Paul really said what he meant to say, if he was really anointed by the Holy Ghost to say, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, that means there is never 
there has never been and never will be any guilt associated with any action of our flesh. Because if our righteousness was purchased by the blood of Jesus, there's no human action that can be stronger than that. So Paul seemed to have a, a pretty good understanding of the difference between the man on the inside that wants to do right and the man on the outside that kept pulling him away into sin. Jesus makes much of the same points here. When he talks about the Father in me, he doeth the works. It's not me, he says. I'm not the originator of these things. Sure, God is using me and he's anointed me to do these things and to perform the works that he wills to be done. But I'm not the source. If he were the source, he'd been able to do miracles before he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. But that was the beginning point. That's when the anointing of the Holy Ghost came down from heaven and landed on him and stayed. So Jesus, talking again about these things, rankles the Jews. They were upset because he's claimed to be equal with God. Why is he equal with God? Because the power of God, which is the anointing of the Holy Ghost, has been given to him to do the same works that God himself institutes and ordains to be done. Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. He's saying, I'm just as helpless as you are, except for the anointing power of the Holy Ghost. Now why is he as helpless as we would be, or we are? Because he laid aside his heavenly power and glory when he came to the earth. He set those things aside. He gave up the power and the glory and the majesty that he had as a part of the Godhead, the three in one. That the Bible says that it was Jesus who created the worlds. The worlds were created for him and by him. He laid off aside all that power. That's why he couldn't do any miracles before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. He has to have power to do things other than just what he could do as a human being. And that's what he was. He was a human being. He was a divine human being. But he's a human being nonetheless. So it took the anointing of the Holy Ghost, the anointing power of God, to enable him to do the miracles and the works and the healings and all the wonderful things that he did for the benefit of mankind. And that's what he's trying to explain. It's the Father in me that does the works. It's not me. I am in the Father. He's in the Father because he has the same spirit, the same righteousness as God himself. When Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory, he put himself, in, he put himself into the hands of his Father to breathe into Mary's womb, life, righteousness, untainted by sin, life, the God kind of life. And Jesus lived that life for the first 30 years that he was here on the earth. Then the anointing power of God came on him. And he was able to do healings and miracles. Because of God's power. Not something he's attained on his own. And so the Jews are freaked out about this. How can anybody claim to be equal with God? Well when Jesus says God is my father. And they interpreted that. Or claimed that that was him saying he was equal with God. You and I can say the same thing. 
You're born of God. You're born of the same righteousness that Jesus was. So in that sense, God is your father and you're equal with him too. Now that doesn't mean we have the same anointing that Jesus had. I believe collectively on the earth, the body of Christ has an equal measure of the anointing that was on Jesus. The Bible said Jesus had the spirit without measure and that implies you and I have it by measure. And I believe that's part of what Paul is telling us when he says the Spirit of God divides these manifestations of his power to every man severally as he wills. It's not according to our will. It's not according to what we want to do. It's according to what God has ordained to be done by the Holy Ghost here in the earth. Skip with me now over to, um, let's go to chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Notice what John is telling us. John is saying the, the crowds were a result of believing in the miracles. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said unto Philip, Whence, where, shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him and said, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, and that every one of them may take a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here which has five barley loaves, And two small fishes, but what is that among so many? Now, folks, remember, this is a little boy's lunch. Some people trying to deny the miracle power of God have said, well, the loaves were bigger in those days. But this is a little boy's lunch. He's not pushing a shopping cart. He's got a bag of of bread and fish, a little bag of bread and fish. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. And there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. And when they were all filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them. Uh, under them that had eaten then those men notice verse 14 then those men which they had when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did said this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world they're beginning to recognize him as the Messiah when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king he departed again into a mountain himself alone and when the evening was now come his disciples went down into the sea And entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. (coughs) Excuse me. And they were afraid. But he said unto them, it is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. And immediately the ship was at the land whether they went. Now, there's some interesting things about this, not really on topic, but let me mention them just real quickly. 
John knows that Matthew has already identified the story and told the story about Peter walking on the water to go to Jesus. Remember that? John doesn't say anything about it. At the time that John writes this, Peter has been long gone from the earth. He was crucified. He was martyred. And because he didn't consider himself worthy to suffer the same death as Jesus in his crucifixion, he asked to be crucified upside down, and, they, and that's what the Romans did. So John doesn't take a swipe at him. He doesn't say, let me tell you a funny story and point out Peter's unbelief after he had initially walked on the water. But he does tell us something that Matthew didn't. He tells us that as soon as Jesus got to the ship and got into the ship, they were translated, transported to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and we're instantly at their de destination. Now, folks, why? What was the purpose of being instantly transported or translated to the other side of the Sea of Galilee? It doesn't have any bearing on the work that they would do. It doesn't have any bearing on anything except that it was God by the Holy Ghost revealing to the disciples of Jesus just who it was that they were working with. Again, look at the willingness of the Holy Ghost to show himself strong and to do these things to display the power of God in miraculous ways. Didn't really have a, a, a life-altering purpose. But it was something that God was willing to show and to demonstrate so that the disciples would know who Jesus was. Now let's keep reading. The day following, verse 22, the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea, that's the people, the 5,000 that were filled with the loaves and the fishes. The day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save or except the one whereunto his disciples were entered and that Jesus went not with his disciples under the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, meaning on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from his disciples, where they had been fed with the five, where the 5,000 were fed. When he's not there and the people recognize he's not there anymore, they took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they came to him and said, Rabbi, whence camest thou hither? How did you get here? How did you get here? Why would that be an important issue? And, of course, Jesus said, well, let me tell you, I went walking on the water. Peter tried, succeeded a little bit, but then got scared and sank. And then when I got in the boat, we were instantly on the other side. Didn't say any of that. Because he knows there's something else going on. Let's keep reading. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has the Father sealed. Now, folks, remember we read in, uh, what was it, verse 14? Then those men, talking about the feeding of the 5,000, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is a truth of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. 
Now he says in verse 26, Jesus says, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the bread and were filled. Jesus basically says, You're not even here because of the miracles you've witnessed. You're just here for another free lunch. Now, folks, that begs some comparison. You remember the first miracle Jesus did when he turned the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana? You remember the story? You remember that the, the governor of the feast, the MC of the wedding ceremonies apparently, announced after the, wine that the water that Jesus turned into wine, he announced that it was better than the best wine that they started with. He didn't know anything about the supernatural or the miraculous thing that had happened. But he says, you guys, where people normally put out the best wine first, you've saved the best wine for last. So the water that Jesus turned into wine was better wine than they started off with in the wedding feast or the wedding ceremony, right? Well, in the same way, I don't have any doubt whatsoever. You can't prove it, but you can't disprove it either. But I don't have any doubt whatsoever that the loaves and the fishes was the best fish and bread that these people had ever had. And that's why Jesus says, you're not even here because of the miracle. Now, what happened overnight to these people? Because the day before, after witnessing, being the beneficiary of the, of the miracle that, of the loaves and the fishes, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet which should come into the world. How did they go from there to verse 26 when Jesus says, you're not even looking for me because of the miracles? What's happened to these people overnight? He said, you're just here for a free lunch. Now, folks, as I said, there's a balance. There has to be a balance between coveting spiritual gifts or coveting the manifestations of the Spirit, desiring those things. The Bible says that it's a godly desire. It's the desire that God instructs us to have. Look for the working of the Holy Ghost. Count it important. Seek after it. Covet these things of God. There has to be a balance between that and seeking a sign like an evil and wicked generation. There has to be. You remember when Jesus was brought before Herod. Herod sought Jesus to do a work or a miracle. Jesus wouldn't do it. Jesus said of the generation that crucified him, that put him on the cross. He said, the only sign that will be given unto you is the sign of Noah, I mean uh, of uh, Jonah, which was three days and nights in the belly of the fish. He's talking about the three days and nights that he'll spend in the belly of the earth, into the lowest part of hell, paying the price with his own life to ransom you and me. These same people that in verse 14 were wowed by the miracle and thought and attached the meaning of the Messiah to that miraculous work. These same people now have apparently forgotten about the miraculous work that Jesus did and they've set their attention on something else. Now without reading the rest of the chapter, it's a pretty long chapter. But there were th several things that Jesus began to say to them. They talked about 
God providing Moses manna, Moses and the children of Israel manna in the wilderness. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And then he says something that they just cannot accept. He said, except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no part in me. Now they're taking that literally. And drinking blood, particularly human blood, not just human blood, the same thing was true for animals, but particularly human blood, was forbidden above all things in Jewish law. So they think that Jesus is saying something to them contrary to the law of Moses. Now they don't stop. Nowhere in this does anybody stop and say, wait a minute. We may not understand what he means by these things. Maybe we can get him to explain it to us. But even if we don't get an explanation, he's the guy that multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed 5,000 people yesterday. Folks, if you've got to have a miracle to believe today, you'll have to have a miracle to keep believing tomorrow. And that's one thing Jesus identified as an evil and wicked generation. Now remember in the Old Testament when the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan, spy out the land of Canaan, 10 of them came back with what the Bible calls an evil report. What was that evil report? It was a report of doubt. It was a claim that we can't do it. We can't take the land that God says is ours. So we would have to equate an evil report with a wicked generation, wouldn't we? The seeking of a sign. So there, again, there has to be a balance. Where's the balance for the church? We're instructed to covet the best gift, covet the manifestation of the Spirit, desire these things. Now, let me make this comment too. The letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians is not a letter to John Brown at Corinth. It was a letter to the whole church. So when he says, covet the best gifts, he's talking to the whole church, not just an individual. When he says to desire these things, he's not talking just to an individual. He's saying as a church body, desire these things. Now, they've already got them happening. They've already got them operating in their services in some ways in great disorder. But Paul said of this church, they come behind in no good gift. When Paul gives the list of nine manifestations of the Spirit in chapter 12 of the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians, they understand. They may not have known what these things were called, but they understand what these manifestations of the Spirit are. They've got them all working. And so he says to the church, desire these things, covet these things. But there are other things that they don't covet that they should. There are other things that they don't have much experience in, which is doctrine, sound doctrine. They don't have much experience in, in self-discipline. Well, those are things we should want too, aren't they? And we all said amen because we know we should want those things. Where's the balance? Folks, there's got to be a, a dividing line. There's got to be a balance. And perhaps the balance is individual. Maybe the balance for you is different than the balance for me. Maybe because we come from different places in our spiritual growth and our spiritual development, maybe what you should have a desire for is different than what I should have a desire for, as long as it's the work of the Holy Ghost operating by the will of God. I don't claim to have all the answers on this stuff, folks. Jesus continues on. But once they said, once he told the crowd, 
in John chapter 6 that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Verse 60, it says, Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Does this offend you? What, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it be given unto him of my father. Notice verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. These are the same ones that were so greatly focused on Jesus and who he was the day before when they experienced the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. One day later, they give up on him altogether. Jesus asked the disciples. He knew these were difficult things that he was saying. Now, folks, Jesus, if Jesus knew who didn't believe and who was going to betray him, Jesus had to know what the effect would be when he said these things. And Jesus does not for one moment try to calm everybody down and say, wait, wait, wait. I'm using a lot of examples that you guys don't get. Let me explain them to you. We don't want anybody to be offended. Jesus knew they were going to be offended. And he said what was needful to say. And remember the whole problem, the whole thing that starts is, is because they came not looking for a miracle, not even because they believed in the miracle, but because they're looking for another lunch. Jesus knew these people weren't for him. They weren't sold out. These are the same ones, or some of the same ones at least, that he knew that would, were planning to take him by force and force him to be the king. That's why he sent the disciples away, sent the crowds away, and went up into a mountain to pray. So the people that wanted him to be king yesterday that experienced the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, the next day, less than 24 hours later, the next day, they left Jesus never to return. Jesus turns to the disciples and said, you're going to go away too? Notice Jesus did not say, oh, please, please, please don't leave me. I can't imagine greater pressure than trying to make everybody happy all the time so they stick with you. I feel bad for a lot of pastors that I know operate just that way. Jesus didn't seem to operate like that. So they left him. The disciples, when they were asked, are you going to go away too? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Did Peter understand any better than the people that left? What do you think? Do we have any indication whatsoever that Peter had some kind of secret knowledge or some kind of special explanation? He's just as much in the dark as, as the others were. 
He's just as offended by the idea of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, if that is the literal meaning, which, of course, it wasn't. Peter doesn't know anything more than the others do. But he recognizes something that the others may not have ever known. And that is that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Remember, those are the words that Jesus said were not of him, but were given to him of his Father. So where's the balance? For Peter, it was the, word, it was the words of eternal life. He said, we know you have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? Where would we go? Folks, the word of God never fails. The word of God never changes. And the Holy Ghost wants to do things in our midst. He wants to manifest himself. He wants to display God's power. He wants to show us God's strength. He wants to show us his willingness to help and bless people. He wants to heal the sick. He's not given to us as a hindrance to these things. He's given to us to facilitate these things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of the faithfulness of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. We thank you that he's recreated us, made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. He's made us the righteousness of God in him. And he's been given to empower us. We have received power by the Holy Ghost coming upon us. As such, we see that the Holy Spirit desires to manifest himself in revelation, in power, and in utterance. So, Father, as a church body, we desire these things. We make our desire known to you that we covet these things. Above all else, we covet these things to operate by the will of the Father according to the Holy Ghost's will that people can be blessed. Father, we're not asking you to work by the Spirit of God to tickle our fancy. We're not asking you for a sign or a miracle that we might believe. We simply declare that we are the believing ones. And we recognize that the work of the Holy Ghost is given to be a blessing to those who do not know you. To help those that are in need of help. Not just for the unsaved. But Father, we pray unselfishly for these things. That you would manifest yourself and your power and your presence and your glory. Unto those that you know need help. We recognize that you've given us the words of eternal life, Lord. And the words of eternal life are good enough for us as individuals. We're perfectly willing to take that which Jesus has purchased for us on faith. And by our faith, stand and see the miraculous work of God change things in our lives. But Father, we also need the help of the Holy Ghost.
Jesus told us we needed the help of the Holy Ghost to do the work that we've been given to do. So Holy Spirit, have your way in our church. Have your way among us. Have your way upon us. That we might do the works that Jesus did. And Holy Spirit, because Jesus said it, we even ask you for greater works. Whatever those might be. We pray these things as a church family. Because we desire to see people helped and blessed. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. We love you.